Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Juliana Rangel-Posada. She's an associate professor of apiculture, Department of Entomology and Interdisciplinary Program in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Texas A&M University. So, Juliana, thanks for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it looks like you're researching honeybees. Uh, what, What are you researching? In general, at a broader scale, in my lab, we study the biological and abiotic factors that affect the health of managed honeybees in the United States. So we do all kinds of research related to diseases, pathogens, parasites, pesticide exposure, nutrition, and their synergistic interactions that affect um, the, the health of honeybees. Oh, if, if you were to rank what affects the health of honeybees from, you know, strongest to weakest, what are some of the top things that uh, that cause them health problems? Yeah, so the number one problem in apiculture in the United States continues to be a parasitic mite called Varroa destructor. This mite um, is originally a parasite of relative of the Western honeybee, um, the Asian honeybee, Apis serrana. But about 30 years ago, it uh, jumped hosts and started parasitizing the Western honeybee that we have here in the United States and Europe and Africa. And it, the, the Western honeybee wasn't really prepared to, um, to combat the varroa mite. And so it's taken the bees and the beekeepers several decades to try to manage uh, varroa uh, related issues. So imagine if you were a bee and you had a mite on your body, the size of the of the mm. mite would be uh, the very similar to a paper plate in size. That's the age, the the size difference between a mite with a a mite on a bee and a mite the size of the of the mite on a human would be about the size of a paper plate. And sometimes these bees have two or three or four of these mites on them. And so the mite. Oh sucks the um, some of the fluids from the bee to for for its nutrition but it also transmits over two dozen viruses that wow. weaken the the immune system of of honeybees so that's the still the number one problem but we have issues with other pathogens of course the vi- the viruses that uh, varroa vectors is fungal pathogens other types of uh, insect pests Poor nutrition is one of the top health-related issues in honeybee colonies because sometimes they don't get the the amount of nutrition that they need to withstand all of these stressors. Habitat loss, so urbanization and decrease in natural forage for honeybees is one of the big problems. We also have um, pesticide exposure. So either the bees that are collecting nectar and pollen from flowers are bringing back on their bodies and in the food they collected traces of 
also sorts of agrochemicals that are used in um, in agricultural crops or what's even worse or or more common is the chemicals that the beekeepers apply to the colonies to get rid of all of these problems that i'm telling you so texas had exposure uh, from the outside and from within uh, are a big big issue and finally um queen queen problem so a honeybee colony is headed by one reproductive female that's the queen she lays about 1,000 to 2,000 eggs a day and uh, that turn into female workers. The workers do all the tasks that are non-reproductive while the queen is the one that does the reproductive mating and egg laying. And we're seeing a lot of issues in the last decade or more of poor queen quality, uh, queens dying early or prematurely. And so all of these issues that I just told you are wreaking havoc in, in our colonies and are typically acting all at once. Yeah, that's crazy. So what what's some new learnings in terms of keeping bees in a healthy way? You know, not spraying them to death with chemicals? Like what what are some of the yeah, suggestions? So that... we are, um, we do in my lab have done a lot of work on the reproductive quality of, of queens and drones. Drones are the male honeybees. And we've shown that exposure to these chemicals, the agrochemicals that either the foragers bring in on their bodies, but most importantly, the miticides, and we call those miticides are the ag- the chemicals that we use to kill mites, the varomites, and uh, that those are causing uh, health issues to the very bees that we want to save. So the queens and the drones uh, that are exposed to uh, those chemicals during in the wax that they they grow up in as as uh, baby bees as as larvae and pupae, having wax that's contaminated with those chemicals actually causes the queens and the drones to have lower reproductive quality. We do that in many ways. We take out the adults and we measure how many drones the queens made it with, for example, or how much sperm the um, drones can provide during mating and we've shown that being exposed to these chemicals lowers the viability of the sperm and the and the quality reproductive quality of queens and drones so there's no way that we can recommend not to do anything about varroa because it is clear now that colonies that don't get treated for varroa will probably collapse within one or two years if they are left untreated but we are making an argument for beekeepers becoming more aware of the chemicals that they're putting into their colonies, trying to maybe take turns between treatments so that the mites don't become resistant to um, to these products and do some sort of integrated pest and pollinator management where the beekeepers can replace their their wax every so often maybe every couple of years so that the wax because the wax is kind of like a sponge so you don't want the wax to to continuously collect all these chemical residues that then are trapped in the wax matrix you want to replace the wax with new wax every few years uh, so that it's clean and not full of chemicals. What do you mean replace the wax? I, I thought so, the bees make make the wax. Or the yeah, comb. the the bees make make the wax. That's that's true. They make comb, and so but it stays there, and then they keep 
reusing it and reusing it, right? The bees use the same cells over and over, but because they're bringing in all these chemicals and the beekeepers are applying chemicals to the colonies and it, it involves also the wax getting contaminated, we recommend that beekeepers take the frames out, take the wax out of the frames or use new frames, which are wooden frames uh, with a just a wire foundation for the bees to kind of start the process again and build new comb that hasn't collected all of those chemicals in the last few years. So, so in the honeybee hive, once they, once, once they make wax, how long do they keep it for? Oh, they will keep it indefinitely for as long as the colony lives. But we oh, have really? to remember, okay. yeah, we have to remember that um, honeybees live in the natural world, not the artificial beekeeping <clears throat> world. They live in tree cavities that are very spaced out between each other and between colonies. You know, you can have maybe one colony in one tree and then another colony in. I don't know, a few hundred feet away. So they're not really crammed like we cram them into our apiaries and they don't get treated for anything. So their wax is clean. They don't, maybe they bring in a little bit of, of uh, pesticides from the outside. But as I said, the harsher chemicals are the ones that they collect in, in, from, from being exposed to them by beekeepers. So colonies will have their combs in use for years until the colony dies. Uh, but beekeepers can do something about chemical contamination by removing the, the very old frames and replacing them with new foundation that the bees can then use to build new comb, cleaner comb. So if you go in and you take the uh, the wax out of a nest, I mean, is that like a, does that totally cause the colony to have to work super hard for a long time or what does it do that's true yes so uh, there is a trade-off between you know using when reusing the same comb and and keeping it there because uh, you're right there's a lot of effort into making wax so it, this is a really cool behavior honeybees have four pairs so eight total wax glands in their abdomen and when when they need to activate them, they release little droplets of molten wax that immediately with the with the air hardens into a, a scale, a very thin see-through scale that then they uh, move to their head area and with their mandibles and with some uh, secretions they mold into kind of like the play-doh that they use for making comb. So this is it is indeed an expensive process because they use all the energy they're consuming just to, to build wax. But that's how colonies grow. So they're used to building wax for when, let's say, they run out of room or they're, they just started a new nest and so they need to build comb for, for the new nest. So they, they do it all the time. And if you remove the wax, the colony will notice that it's run out of space to put away food or to rear babies and they will they will build more comb and so it's a trade-off between you know the energetic cost of building more comb but the positive aspects of using comb that has not been treated with chemicals well how do hives get treated with chemicals are they just sprayed you know ad libitum or like you know how does so, it happen so the beekeepers use several products that are out in the market for the treatment of parasites and pests so the as i said the varroa mite that's the one that uh we're the one that we are most concerned about and so the beekeepers are using 
pyrethroids, organophosphates, uh, formamidines, some uh, organic acids that are known to kill varroa mites. And it's a tricky game where you're trying to kill another arthropod, the mite, but you're trying to keep the honeybees alive. And so it's difficult to find a product that does both things at the same time. And so the beekeeper opens the hive and depending on how big the colony is, you know, like the, the typical beekeeper box with 10 frames each, if you have two or three of these boxes, then the treatment will tell you to add a couple of strips or more strips, depending on the size of this product. So the bees then, they work through contact, most of them. And so the bees will walk near these um, treatment strips and the, the mice that are on the bees get some of that product and then get killed. So, but in doing that, the bees will also come in contact with the wax and the wax will then act like a sponge and collect the chemicals and stay and they will stay in there until indefinitely until you replace the comb later on. I mean, do these treatments work to stop varroa mites or, you know, are they just as destructive as they are helpful? Like what happens when you treat a colony? In terms of varroa mites, a colony that has uh, anything above a 3% infestation level, that means maybe three bees, three mites per every hundred adult bees is considered at, you know, at risk of, of collapsing because of all the viruses that the mites can, can transmit. So they need to be treated. So anything above 3% infestation level need to get, get treated for, for varroa mites. Unfortunately, because as I said at the beginning, uh, the varroa mite is really not a natural enemy of the Western honeybee that we have here. The bees didn't really have a lot of tools to combat them. And so beekeepers got an emergency authorization to use really, really harsh chemicals. Uh, one uh, known as, well, the trade name was Apistan. The common name is uh, fluvalinate. It's, it's a pyrethroid, very harsh chemical. All of these are used in other agro ecosystems for killing other types of pests. And the, the mites became resistant in the 1990s to fluvalinate because we kind of used and abused it. So then they get another emergency authorization for another product, Kumafos, which is an organophosphate. And within 10 years, mites became resistant to Kumafos. And even today, even though people don't really use fluvalinate or Kumafos much anymore, we still continue to see those two products in the wax. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And that is because we continue to use the same wax over and over. And how does that happen? Well, there are some beekeepers that part of their business is to collect wax from bees and beekeepers around them or their own colonies. And then they clean up the wax and melt it into blocks. And then they use those blocks to create what we call sheets of foundation. So it's like a like a very thin sheet of wax that has that hexagonal cell pattern. And we provide those two colonies as a template so that they can create these beautiful hexagonal cells. They don't really okay. need it, but, but we provide them with these sheets of foundation um, kind of as a head start. It saves them a little bit of time. Well, some of, some of that wax that is used for the foundations that you buy from all the beekeeping supply companies, they are not 100% clean. 
because there has been so much utilization of chemicals in our beekeeping industry in the last 40 years that it's almost impossible to find completely clean wax. And so it kind of perpetuates the the cycle of pesticide presence in, in the colonies. Hmm. So in terms of helping the bees with a, a wax template, you said it helps them a little bit or a lot? Are there ways that you've uh, thought of that work better? Well, it, most beekeepers will use either that uh, wax template, uh, we call it foundation, just because it also gives the bees a, a template for a more organized pattern. So there's three types of bees in a colony. Um, you have the queen, and the queen is reared in a completely unique cell that is looks like a peanut, almost like a peanut shell. It's huge mm. and and it's um, oriented vertically compared to the typical honeycomb that you see in the store, which is uh, oriented uh, horizontally. The cells are anyway. And um, those that, that honeycomb that you see at the store in a, in a jar of honey, that one is for workers, uh, which are the females, the vast majority of the individuals in a colony. But you have a third organism, uh, which is the uh, drone, uh, or, or male, the drones are larger in size, maybe by 50% larger than, than the workers. And so they need bigger space to develop. And so in the reproductive season, in the spring and summer, the bees that make this wax in the wax cells, they would create bigger cells for drones to accommodate their bigger size. Well, a lot of beekeepers don't really like drones because drones, they're, they're only role is to reproduce with queens but they don't really do any other tasks like collecting uh, food or you know nectar or pollen so if you leave a colony open without any kind of wax foundation template they will build uh, both worker and drone comb as needed but if you only provide them with wax foundation that has only worker template for worker cells, then they will abstain from creating huh. drone comb. And so that means that there's more room for honey storage instead of drone production. Is it the shape of the comb that determines, you know, the shape of the template that determines yes. what they'll make or other factors? Absolutely. Well, other factors. Uh, but the shape is the same as hexagonal, but it's the size of the cells or the diameter. The overall size is bigger for drones and also taller because the drones are much bigger. And so the colony has this very unique, innate awareness of, of the needs of the colony based on growth and the time of year. So in the spring is when bees will reproduce. And when they need to reproduce, they will, if the colony is large enough, it will swarm. And that's why some people may have seen swarms uh, or clusters of bees on tree branches. That means that maybe the day before or that same day, the colony that was large enough split into two units. The swarm colony is the one that has the mother queen and it will move from that cluster of bees to a new tree cavity they found somewhere days prior or that same day and they will establish a new nest. So it's only adult bees that go back in the parental nest where they came from, they will have started to rear new queens, and one of them is going to ultimately inherit that colony. And so she's going to come out as a virgin. She needs to mate 
with drones and honeybee queens mate with on average 12 to 15 drones uh, in a succession of only that lasts only maybe one or two days and they will store the sperm from all of her, her drone partners for like three years two to three years so this only happens in the reproductive season which is in the spring or summer which means that there needs to be drones for queens to mate with and that's so that's when drones are produced they are only produced in the reproductive season because they're expensive to make they eat a lot that you know they're fatter they they're always out there trying to look for for a mate and if they're not mating they're back in the nest just feeding and refueling to go back out so they're only produced in the um, in the reproductive season and that's when uh, the workers will will create uh, drone comb for drone production. Well, so can you, um, I guess, curate a hive and take out, you know, the majority of the drone comb, and just leave enough that where enough drones are made to mate with the queen, but, you know, minimize that and maximize, like replace it with the, uh, the worker comb? So that's a good point. Some people do that, uh, especially if they're interested in just honey production, if they're, say, beekeepers that live, whose livelihoods depend on, on the amount of honey that they can pull from colonies. But if you are a hobby beekeeper with a few colonies and you're interested more in just learning about the biology of the honeybee, you will soon realize that it's very important to maintain a um, natural ratio of workers and, and drones in the colony, especially in the reproductive season. So one thing that I, that I want to point out is that um, honeybee queens don't mate with their brothers they don't mate with relatives so it's not like the queens that are made in a colony in the spring will mate with the same drones from the same colony that are being made at the same time that would become a big problem with inbreeding so the way that they evolved to avoid inbreeding is that queens virgin queens will fly about a mile away from where their source colony is so they will leave the first day or two, they will do what are known as observation flights. So it's basically short distance flights that to learn so they can learn the landmarks around them. And then when they're comfortable enough to, to fly out, they will fly about a kilometer or a mile away to mate. Whereas drones from that same colony are going to stay close by. So they're only going to fly maybe at most you know 100 yards or so from from their source colony and that's for two things so that they don't mate with that queen that flew a mile away so that distance kind of precludes them from mating with relatives and also because they have to go back and forth back and forth all day long just trying to mate with as many virgin queens as they can mate with um what i mean is find mates that they can mate with in in the vicinity where, where queens are produced. Because interestingly, drones only mate once and they die during copulation. So they they if they're lucky enough to find a virgin queen, they, they copulate and immediately upon copulation, they let go of the queen and their reproductive organ stays inside the queen and breaks off. Basically, they, they drop to their death in, because they become dismembered. So, yeah. so they copulate and they leave... Not just the sperm, but the reproductive, the whole reproductive right. organ inside the queen. Well, really? So the the reproductive organ of honeybee drones is called um, what well, one term is the endophallus, endo inside phallus reproductive organ, and the endophallus 
is all tucked in inside the uh, abdominal cavity, and that's also why their their bodies are so big and their abdomens are so big is they have to have all their reproductive organs tucked in. They only avert them once in their lifetime, only when they have the right stimuli, which is the smell and the feel of of a queen up in midair. So they meet they meet somewhere up in mid midair, and he finally the lucky one will will uh, avert the endophallus, um, insert it in the queen's um, vaginal cavity, and then as soon as that happens, they break the endophallus the tip of it, and they drop to their death. And so it's a very traumatic, <laughs> traumatic death. In the in the drones that don't make it, they don't they don't find a suitable mate. Will then get uh, evicted from the colony by the the workers in the fall because they realize you know there's no more queens to mate with, and that's their sole purpose is to mate with queens. So if they're not being of use for reproduction, they're too expensive to maintain. So you don't have drones out there over winter. It's only the workers and then the drones are all kicked out and, and basically starved to death in the fall if they didn't die from trying to mate. So it's kind of a an obscure way of life for drones because they, they're only produced seasonally. They uh, work really hard. They hope to mate, but most of them probably don't. And, and if they don't, then they get killed by the workers uh, in the fall. What a tough existence. Yeah, so they... Let's say, you know, it's, they, they go one way or another. But in, you know, in evolutionary biology terms, the drone acts more like a flying sperm cell that is, their sole purpose is to basically pass on the genetic material from uh, his um, predecessors to the next generations of, of offspring. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Well, what is, yeah. what are the, what happens to the endophalluses once they're in the, the queen? Does, her body so, like strip away the endophallus just to get to the sperm, or how does that's it work? That's a great, great point. So, as I said, the queen mates with about twelve to fifteen drones, um, and that this happens as quickly as maybe within a half hour. Because what they do is they fly, as I said earlier, like maybe a mile away, but they go to a place, a place that has been called a drone congregation area, which is basically a place where drones somehow assess that this is a really cool spot to locate potential mates. Um, they has to have big visibility. So think of maybe some open outdoor space like a prairie or something that has, or a pasture land that has a lot of opportunity for visually encountering incoming traffic, let's say. So they, they create these drone congregation areas, which are clouds of drones from all the nearby colonies. Thousands of drones are around these clouds just looking for uh, virgin queens that are also flying looking for mates. And so once a virgin queen is intercepted by a, by a drone, he leaves the endophallus in there and then he drops to his death. So then another uh, one comes in and takes the endophallus, we call that a mating plug, takes the endophallus with her mandibles and, and legs, takes it out and inserts his and mates with that queen. Then the third one does the same thing. Another third drone will take out the mating plug from the previous mate, insert his, deposit the deposit the sperm, and it happens like that for 12 to 15 times. Can you believe that? Then the last one, the last mate, 
uh, will leave the endophallus or the mating plug in the queen, and then she comes back to the to her colony, to her hive, and then the workers are the ones that remove the last mating plug. Yeah. Okay. So, huh? So they, I guess, they service the queen. But so when the mating plug, well, when the endophallus is in there, that's what releases the sperm into the queen. Or again, do that's we know right. what happens? So there's, um, yeah, we do know. So there, it releases the sperm, and it's thought that um, leaving the endophallus inside helps with sperm transfer. So it helps to release even more sperm um, inside the vaginal cavity, but but really what happens is it takes about 48 hours for the sperm to migrate up to the receptacle called the spermatheca that stores all the sperm. And only about 3% of the sperm that she collects from all of her mates, 10, 15 mates, only about 3% makes it up to the spermatheca. The rest it kind of basically oozes out of the queen. And in any case, even though that's such a small percentage, uh, sp- uh, the spermatheca will contain anywhere from three to five million sperm cells that she will stay and keep using every day for for the duration of her life. So, how was um, you know when she produces eggs? How does she know which uh, which male to use to fertilize the eggs? She doesn't. That's Is there a choice? Question. So there's no choice. No, it's whatever comes. You know, at the bottom of the spermatheca it's well mixed and so you know it's kind of random or if it's too packed like at the beginning of the uh, right after mating because there's so much sperm in the in the spermatheca there might be some packed kind of batches that the queen may use in succession and so you may have a few patches of of workers that have the same dad but is it random if she lays a thousand eggs but if she yeah. lays a thousand eggs or a thousand to two thousand eggs, are all of them from the same father, or would you expect no, 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 to get no, no, no. uh, from like no. ten different fathers? Oh yeah, it's from all of the fathers. There's gonna be if you look at a thousand workers, you're gonna have a good representation of, of all ten or twelve uh, fathers that batch. Oh, okay, so said, it mixes. The sperm, the sperm is mixed in the spermaticas. Just that, let's say, because it's too tight, tightly coiled, maybe you will find that there's five of the same father and then five of the same father, but there's nothing. She doesn't do any selection of what sperm she's going to use. No, there's no difference seasonally or, you know, as, as she's getting through the, as the spermatheca is emptying, there's no like a change in the, in the mixture of, uh, you know, workers produced. There can be a little bit of patchiness, but it's not something that, is done on purpose. It might be because, as I said, it might have been coiled up together um, during sperm transfer uh, because of the way the sperm is arranged. It, it has a really thin head or acrosome, but it has a really, really, really long tail. And because newly mated queens don't have a lot of space in the spermatica, the sperm is fully coiled, coiled up. It looks like a tangled uh, mess. And so in that respect uh when she's using portions of the sperm to start fertilizing eggs there can be you know delivery of of sperm from the same father just because they happen to be coiled up together but not because she said oh this is going to be johnny's daughter and william's (laughs) daughter yeah nothing like i just didn't know if there's any sensing of the quality of the males and so in the season as it goes on there's any differences but 
there doesn't seem to be that. Hmm. Okay. But that, that, that's a good question. But no, it's a, it's all been uh, an evolutionary strategy to increase um, genetic diversity in the colony. And it's been shown through several studies that genetic diversity increases a colony's ability to withstand and tolerate disease, but also be more productive. So certain genetic lines are better at foraging for pollen. Some are better for po foraging for nectar. Some are better for foraging for water uh, or tree resins. And so having all of that diversity within one colony benefits the, um, the overall performance of the colony. So it's good to have all that genetic richness. But if the queen doesn't mate with her, uh, her brothers, how does she orchestrate a time where there'll be like 10 to, to 15 different males around it's, for her to mate with from another hive? The, that's, that's a great question. It's all about the uh, colonies undergoing the same environmental cues so just like everything coming to life in the spring you know birds trees um, animals come out of uh, either diapause or hibernation because of temperature changes uh, and the length of, of duration of daylight they're the same kind of cues that tell honeybee colonies that there's a lot of food out they go out collect a lot of food there's the the queen um, it's warm enough for the queen to start laying eggs again the colony starts packing up all the food that they can get. They start running out of space. It's too crowded inside. And so all of those cues, plus the daylight duration and the temperatures, tell the colony it's time to split, which is the swarming. And so during that time is when they start rearing new queens for the upcoming swarming season. And that's when they start making drones. So colonies that are strong, that have a good population, they kind of know ahead of time what's to come and they start preparing by um, producing a lot of, of drones for, for the swarming season. And because all the colonies are undergoing the same environmental pressures and cues, all of them are being prepared in the same manner. And that's why, why you find that on a very beautiful, sunny day, and depends on where you are in the country, in Texas, it starts occurring in... <laughs> as early as, as early March, but uh, in some parts of the country, it can be June, um, depending on the, you know, when it's 80, 85 degrees out, beautiful blue sky, low winds, uh, plenty of forage out, you will see several colonies swarming at the same, because they just get, they like the same environmental cues that tell them it's the right time to swarm. So when they so, swarm, that's when the, uh, the males will go from, you know, they'll go find the queens and meet up and well, around that going. time, yes, around that time. So swarming is decoupled from mating. Swarming is the colony-level fissioning, and that's just the uh, the process of the swarm leaving with the mother queen, and because the mother queen is already mated, she doesn't need to mate. She never mates again. The queens only mate once in their life, and that's it. But what I mean about the swarming season is that once that swarm leaves, back in the parental nest are all the virgin queens, some of whom will survive, and then they will need to mate. So all the colonies are in, in preparation for that individual level mating, which is the, the actual copulation of those virgin queens with drones. And all of that happens at around the same time. Oh, and like this gigantic swarm? Yeah. It sounds like well, a very yeah, social I mean, event, it sounds like. The swarming is a very social event. It looks very chaotic. If you have ever witnessed a colony swarming, 
if you've never seen that, you get scared because it's a cloud of bees that you think is completely in disarray and unorganized. But in reality, it's an event that takes only 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and they, it is quite organized and it's all guided by pheromones, order cues, organized by a few individuals in the colony and quite precise. Uh, and they're incredibly gentle when they're swarming. So you, you can be surrounded by a cloud of bees and they will not sting you. Preoccupied doing something else, you know, leaving the colony for forever, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, very interesting. So what are some milestones in your research you're hoping to uh, achieve over the next couple of years? Great question. So um, we showed some of the impact of these agrochemicals on honeybee queens and drones. And now I'm, I'm more interested in learning about... Uh, how nutrition affects uh, reproductive quality. So the the type and amount of nutrition that these queens and drones get, um, not only as adults, but also when they're developing, how that affects queen quality and drone quality. We're doing some studies on uh, worker foraging behavior and nutrition. So we're trying to look at whether bees are using pollen, which is their source of protein, if they're using certain pollens that have different ratios of protein to lipid to micronutrients, if they're using different types of pollen to try to improve their health, especially when they are uh, challenged with diseases like uh, the formed wing virus or the fungal pathogen nosema. So are bees, when given a choice, do they use diets that are higher or lower in protein or lipid amounts to help them improve their chances of um, withstanding these these infections. So using mm-hmm. nutrition as a way to kind of like self-medicate almost to help improve their immune responses to um, disease, disease challenges. Um, you mean you're seeing if they change? Well, I mean, they're pollinating different types of flowers throughout right. the season, right? So yes, that... Yes. I guess there's nothing they can do about, but that's right. Is it, is it the mixture of pollen versus honey that they take from the the plants that they're working with, or how would they modulate? The way we're doing it is more in a in a controlled way in which the beekeeper can actually manipulate the diet of the bees. So we do a lot of um, in beekeeping. There's a lot of supplementing the nutrition of bees by either giving them protein supplements or uh, or even for honey production, people want to take most of their honey for to make money selling the honey, so they feed them uh, sugar syrup and, and take all the honey out. So we do a lot of manipulation in that way. So if you give them an artificial diet that has a specific protein to lipid ratio, for example, uh, can it help them when they have, uh, let's say, high levels of nosema disease, which is a fungal pathogen that disrupts their digestive system? And so that's kind of something that we're looking at right now. And there's some evidence that they seem to be selecting for the, when given a choice, they seem to be selecting for diets that have a specific protein to lipid ratio, which can tell us that they might choose them um, in, in a way that helps them improve their chances of uh, lowering the levels of these viruses and, and disease. So we're in the beginning stages of that, but there's our, our lab and other labs across the country are looking at how to improve nutritional ecology in honeybees, even with if it is with um, supplemental 
diets. So diets that you can create for beekeepers to provide to their bees. It's, of course, it's ideal to have a balanced diet that is natural and that has the perfect combination of amino acids and all the protein that they get. But the reality is the bee season for pollen is not very long. And the rest of the year, the bees have to either starve sometimes because there's not they didn't collect enough pollen or they have to rely on the beekeepers giving them supplements. And the supplements that we're giving them are probably not the best in terms of all of these micro and macronutrient ratios. So that's what we're looking what for. about a bee that's, um, that, that has varroa mites? Do they tend to pollinate differently or eat different things or take different things from the flowers they pollinate? That's a great question. There doesn't seem to be evidence that they uh, forage preferentially for specific chemicals, but they do do, there's some, some bees that have what we call social immunity. And so they, uh, for instance, go and collect resins from trees and they turn that resin into what we call propolis. I don't know if you've ever heard of the word propolis because it's sometimes used in the uh, cosmetics industry. But propolis is basically the product that bees, it's, they call it the bee glue. And it's um, modified tree resin that they, they go to a tree, they collect the, re- the resin from that tree, they bring it back, they kind of regurgitate it back or, or mix it up with, with uh, secretions, and then they create a glue. That glue is um, has very good antimicrobial properties. And so there are colonies that have a higher tendency to collect propolis and they, call, they create what we call propolis envelopes. They basically kind of seal the whole colony with, um, with a kind of a layer of this propolis and it helps them combat diseases. Not necessarily varroa, but bacterial and other types of pathogens in the colony. So... They can forage for things, not necessarily pollen, but things that help them improve their health, in this case, properly. But in varroa, what's, what's most important about varroa is that we don't let the colony uh, dwindle from having too high of a varroa load. So colonies that have a really high varroa load, they just don't do well at all. They don't forage almost. They're not as productive. They don't, they're more lethargic, all the bees. They live shorter lifespans. That means that they have fewer days of productivity per capita. And so all those things need to be considered in, when trying to do something against varroa. Continues to be the number one problem we have in apiculture. It's varroa mite. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, very good. Juliana, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? We have a very active uh, Facebook page. Um, it's TAMU, as in Texas A&M University. TAMU. Honey Bee Lab. You just look up Facebook on Facebook, Tamiya Honey Bee Lab. We have over 4,000 followers from all over the world, actually. It started as a, you know, just people in Texas, but um, I travel a lot for work, just speaking to beekeeping organizations. And we've now got people following us from, I think, almost every continent. And that's where we showcase all the research that comes out of our lab and all the presentations and conferences we're attending. But but also um, showcasing the work of colleagues around around the U.S. and the world that are doing really important work for pollinator health. Honeybee, you just look up Tamu Honeybee Lab, and that's that'll it'll get you to the right place. Very good. Well, Juliana, thank you for coming. It's been a very interesting thank you. call.
Thank you so much. I appreciate If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.